uh, what I'd like to talk about um, today, which I think is a really a very important topic, and that is that <coughs> what is not commonly known or understood, you know, is um, what happens in the era before the Mashiach comes. And that will give us a much greater understanding and a much greater picture of what's happening today. Because really, you know, when you think about it, and what I've said many times, is we are really now in the era before the Mashiach comes. So the question is, what really happens? And also, of course, how do we understand that? What's the logic of it, of why this should happen? And that's what I'd like to talk about, you know. Um, and of course, uh, to point out those things which are happening as a result of that. In order to understand uh, really um, what happens before the Mashiach comes, it's, it's uh, very important just to understand certain fundamentalized ideas, which over the years I've, I've mentioned, but just to uh, get back into it, you need this kind of framework. <clears throat> You know, we ask ourselves, who is God, really? And I once gave a whole shit about that, but essentially what we realize, and <clears throat> in many ways, this is really the principle that determines what's happening. Who is God? And I, I had said a long time ago that, uh, there, uh, and there are many ideas, but very simply, I don't know if it's simple, but <clears throat> God is the existence itself. That means that uh, everything that exists really has God in him, or in her, or in the thing itself. In other words, <clears throat> God is existence per se. So we can actually say that God doesn't have existence, he really is existence. And therefore we can never comprehend that what that is, because we are obviously beings that have existence. We don't know what it means. We don't know what a being that is pure existence. We have no idea what that means. And that's one of the reasons why nothing can comprehend God, because nothing com can comprehend a being whose essence is its own existence, and so on. So I've said that before, and so on, you know. Therefore, what that comes, what that means ultimately is that since God is the existence per se, everything emanates from Him. Because obviously, where would they get, where would they get the existence from? They would get it from God, because God is existence. So clearly, He has to give existence to everything. So basically, everything emanates from God. And therefore, as a result of that, really God is one. It's a concept of oneness. Because there can be many types of beings, each one having a different essence. But a being that is existence itself, there's only one being like that, and that's God. And as a result of that, God is Enoid Mavada, which means that, that God is one, A, as I said, because at least from what we understand, although it's really deeper than this, uh, the existence or the essence of God is existence per se. And what's interesting about that is, therefore, since God is existence itself, He really exists. We who emanate from Him <coughs> don't exist at all like Him, because we have to be given existence from Him. So in a certain sense, we emanate from Him, so our existence 
is based on him okay so uh, we don't really exist like God at all in fact one can even say that the existence any existence that emanates from God in other words God giving it existence uh, really in a certain sense doesn't even really exist at all because it is not existence per se but God is existence per se okay we emanate from him and that is a very important idea therefore <clears throat> what is very critical to understand is that God has an attribute called Yichud or oneness he is the only one that is uh, literally in that sense anyway so that's a very important concept and really that's the basis of everything that follows and from that we can begin to understand what happens in the messianic era I should say what happens in the era before the Messiah comes <clears throat> now God made a decision uh, I have spoken about that a long time ago and the decision was that until a certain whatever the time was although God created time God is the only thing that is there is nothing else and so on nothing exists nothing coexists with God at all but God decides for whatever reason that he wants to bring in a being that being is called man okay and that man will experience God that's what he wants what does it mean it means that the the person who will be created that in other words that God will give it existence this man God will allow this person to experience his own existence which is God now how that happens we don't really know uh, but the main idea is that a person has existence and he has an essence whatever he is you see but nobody really knows who they are nobody experiences the the uh, concept or the phenomenon of existence itself if he did he would experience God directly because the existence of an individual is God but what God decides is that he's going to give an individual the experience of existence itself where a person can come in contact with his own being whatever makes him exist therefore since God is the existence of an individual that individual will experience God just beyond it, it, it's beyond comprehension what that means uh, but that's what God decides and so on you know and of course the place that God wants him to exist to experience that existence which is him is in a certain place which is called Elam Habo the future world now God made some monumental decision that he's not going to give an individual whoever that is that he creates the ability to experience God or his own existence for free it's not a matona it has to be earned and that of course is a monumental uh, requirement he has to earn it which brings into all brings into play all kinds of difficulties because if the person what happens if the person doesn't earn it then he doesn't get it there's a risk involved and so on but in any case that's what God decides in other words what God says is I'm going to give you the ability to experience your own existence which is me only if you earn it basically he allows him to earn it freely it means he gives the person free will and if the person 
is oived or does what's required, then he could be said to have caused his own experience with God. He's the causation. And that's what God wants. God wants mankind to be responsible or to, be, or to, be, or to cause uh, the experience that he will get after he has earned it with God himself. Very important concept. Okay. Therefore, in order to bring about uh, a situation that man can work and do something, okay, then what God does is very interesting. We know what God wants. What he wants is you to experience your own metzius, your own existence, which is God himself, because you emanate from God. <clears throat> so what he does, therefore, is God creates a barrier initially that you will not experience existence or God at all. And therefore God creates barriers where you cannot experience God. And therefore what God wants you is to remove those barriers. And as you remove the barriers, which I'll talk about, you get closer and closer to experiencing God. And ultimately you do experience God in whatever capacity that God allows. Very important concept, the concept of ikuvmo, barriers, obstacles. And the task of man in a general sense becomes remove the barriers, whatever they are. And you need to remove the barrier based on your own free will. Therefore, you will have been the cause of the fact that the barriers are removed and you will be responsible for that and you therefore will have earned the results of removing the barriers you will have earned the experience of experiencing God uh, we have no concept what that is but it's whatever uh, wherever takes place in Oilam Habo the experience is infinite and it's infinitely pleasurable and it's infinitely long you know I, I like to always characterize Oilam Habo as infinite bliss eternally basically what it is and therefore this is what God wants and he makes that decision now <clears throat> therefore what we have to do is focus on these four barriers obviously because this is the avoido this is the task of man and we will see <clears throat> that each of these barriers really uh, occurs uh, in different uh, eras and this in many ways will explain what is going on now? What is the era, of the, the era of the Mashiach? And what has to happen during that era? And our understanding will be much greater, will have much greater clarity if we understand what the barriers are. So what are they? Okay, I'm going to tell you that there are four barriers. Not one, two, three, but there are four. Now remember, a key concept is that that means that God really is the only thing that exists because he is existence per se. He's the only one therefore that exists. We who must borrow, so to speak, or emerge from him or emanate from him, right? So God is really in us. God is not out there somewhere, you know, across the end of the universe or whatever, right? God is in you, or rather you are in God. Therefore, God is closer to you than yourself. You see, so, uh, you know, it's funny when you pray to God, what you're really praying 
to is not a being that exists outside of you that that sees you for for instance but you're praying to somebody that from which you emerge actually you see and therefore god is as close to you during your prayer as anything you could ever imagine so therefore that's a very important idea and therefore this begins to tell us what the barriers are okay first barrier in the beginning god was the only thing that existed he is existence and he's the only thing that exists nothing coexists with god at all everything had to be created everything because nothing coexists with god so the first thing god created which is interesting is the concept called ezulosoi he has to create the concept called other you see before god created other other did not exist there was no such thing there was no capacity there was no possibility of an other at all there was just god you see and god is the only thing that exists there's no concept the capacity there's no ability of anything outside of god in other words it's it's not that well god just has to give existence to something and that thing will emanate that's true but first you have to create the ability or rather the concept of an other that they can be in impossibility that an other can exist and emanate from god that itself is an act of creation that's called zulosoi zulosoi means besides him you see so god creates what's called a besides him phenomenon people don't realize it's not that you just pop out of god no there has to be a creation that a phenomenon that exists where you can pop out of god you see that has to be brought to existence it's called the well well yes you can use that in it has to be a potential that there could be another being that exists besides god so to speak you know now he does so but the, here's the interesting thing about that when you exist right you don't feel you're emanating from god at all you don't feel that at all you see as far as you're concerned you exist independent of god or separated from god you see you actually have the illusion that you uh, it's called the illusion of self you actually feel as if you exist really independent of god even though the truth is is that you really don't you see so what god does and we have no idea how he did that he brought in the possibility that another thing can exist and the and what's interesting is that becomes a barrier because now that you are an other you actually feel as if you're a self that you exist independent so if that's the case then you got a problem because if you have this this feeling or experience that you exist at all certainly independent of god then how are you going to experience existence itself which is god and therefore that will diminish your sense of other you see because the more you experience god the less you feel like a true self because you emanate from god it's an interesting paradox you see <clears throat> but nonetheless god does it and the whole the operation the way he does that it's called simsum kabbalah which means god contracts himself whatever that means in a way that it, it, people now can experience 
themselves as beings separate from God. But then the problem is that once you do that, then how do you experience the fact that God is the only thing that exists and that you emanate? They're, in many ways, they're contradictory phenomenon or phenomena. Anyway, that certainly is an obstacle to experience God. That's the first, and that's most difficult in a certain sense to remove. And then, of course, it has in it a, we, we, we don't understand, because if I experience God more and more, it means I'm experiencing the fact that He's the only thing that exists. But then, if I'm experiencing that He's the only thing that exists, then how can I exist to experience that? You see, it becomes quite difficult. So obviously, there has to be a point where it stops. It was, I can, ex I can experience his existence, right? But I'm still there, so to speak, to experience that, you see, or else you would just disappear, you see. And uh, so there always has to be some sense of what's called zulosoi, that I exist independent of God, and therefore I can appreciate and I can actually experience the fact that he's the only thing that exists without evaporating or being annihilated. How that occurs, we have no idea. But ultimately speaking, that is the experience in the future world. That's Oilam Habo. That's called Dvekus. And that's why Dvekus is the essential, like I say, phenomenon in Oilam Habo. Dvekus means attachment. You attach to God and you experience God. But what does that mean to experience God? It means you experience God as existence itself. But wait a minute, like I said, if you do that, then you disappear because he's the only one that exists. So in some way, God stops that, but it is sufficient to experience God. It's a very important idea. I know it's a little abstract, but I think if you think about it, I think you can get it. Okay. But in any case, that idea of the oneness of God, which is a true fact, is in many ways the fundamental or the essential feature that God wants us to know. And we experience his oneness in Oilam Habo, in the future world. So, the first barrier is the concept of Zulosoy. You see, that I exist separate and independent of God. I have a true existence myself. That's the first. The second barrier is called spirituality. Now, people think that God is spiritual. Of course not. <coughs> spirituality or Ruchnius is a nivro, it's a created concept. Angels are created, but they are different than us. They are spiritual in makeup and being, you see. But that, that's not God. God is not spiritual. He created spirituality, or he created a spiritual makeup in beings called angels, you see. And that, therefore, is, is different than God. So God is not spiritual. We have no idea what the nature of God is, but it's not spiritual. Spirituality is a dimension, just like the physicality is a dimension. Spiritual, spirituality is a dimension, and in that dimension you have the angels, okay, you have also the neshama, the soul, and so on. But God is beyond spirituality. But spirituality also is a barrier to experience God. So we have two barriers. One is that zulosoy, the fact that you exist independent, at least it looks that way, automatically serves as a barrier from experience God. And the second concept is that even if you're spiritual, I don't care, even if you're an angel, 
you still do not the barrier uh, not only that an angel feels separate and apart but he's spiritual so his dimension of spirituality itself it causes him to be separate or not to experience God himself although it's much greater than us the third barrier is called Geshem materiality or physicality that's a, and that's a real barrier you know angels feel much, feels, uh, feel much closer to God than any being who's material the physical world serves as an immense barrier to our experiencing even the spiritual let alone experience God you see and therefore God created the dimension of materialism or physicality it's called Geshem in order to have a barrier, right, that you have to remove to experience God in the future world. So that's a third barrier, the concept of Geshem, physicality, okay? Now, there is a fourth barrier, which God never intended to actualize, which is interesting. And that barrier is called the Sutton, the Zoyamo, which is the pollution, <coughs> the pollution, the contamination of the Sutton himself. You see, now those things, that adds another dimension in terms of barrier, you see. It's one thing, okay, uh, I don't experience God because I'm either spiritual, uh, because I exist independent of God, at least it looks that way, or I'm spiritual, or I'm physical. You know, I don't experience uh, spirituality. I don't even experience spirituality, spirituality, let alone God. But when you have Zoyama, it's interesting. Uh, you see, somebody who has Geshem or physicality will feel like he's a thing. There's a sense of self. Somebody who has Zoyama feels that he can be equal to God. Maybe he's not right now, but he can get there. You see, because what Zoyama does, what the Sutton does, he's able to pervade your thinking in the physical world that you have a delusion of self in the sense that you can be equal to God. That's what Zoyama does. It does, in many ways, it pits you against God. And that's a delusion, you see, where you actually think that you can become God. And if you think about it, that's exactly what Adam thought, you see. Uh, and that was his test, which I'll explain in a minute. But that's the big difference. Somebody who is invaded by the projections, the pollutant or the contaminant projection of the Sutton, whatever that is, it's a spiritual force and so on, you know, actually thinks that he can equal God or rival God. Maybe, maybe not right now. But ultimately, it can happen, you see. And of course, that's the ultimate delusion. I once gave a shear quite a while ago, the bottom line, and I mentioned in that shear something very important, because in the end, we are subject to this now, as a result of the sin of Adam. And that is that, uh, who, who really is the boss in that sense, you know? Uh, is it myself, that I, I exist independent of God, and not only that, and I really believe that, that's what a person says, right? But I can also equal God at some point in time. Uh, that's one side. The other side is no. So God is the only one that really exists. And that ultimately is the contest or the delusion that a person has to face. You see, if in fact 
the Satan pervades his consciousness, which he does. Now, these are the four barriers, like I say, and a person's got to work his way through all four barriers in order to get back to God, you see. Uh, so, <clears throat> once we understand that, we had an idea in that, what happens really when you think about it? Well, Adam Rishon was, was a Geshem. He was a material being, you know, uh, not exactly physical like us. He was much greater, but he certainly was more, much more physical, or at least he can be described as physical. Now, Adam thought that he could be like God, and that was the, what the Nochosh, the snake who was the mouthpiece of the Sutton. That's what he told Adam and Chava, you know, that you can be like God. And Rashi brings down, what was the argument? That God ate from the tree that he told you not to eat, right? And that's how God became God. You see? No problem. If you eat from that tree, you will also become like God. And this is what he told Chava, Vesim Kelokim. Chava believed him, unfortunately. And then she gave the fruit to Adam. He believed it. He ate the tree. He ate from the tree. And as a result of that, of course, they realized that the whole thing is false. But then as a result of that, since they bought into the argument, the temptations of the Sutton, then this, they became subject to the domination of the Sutton. So measure for measure. Since you buy into him, you will become subject to what he just said. And therefore, they, they lost their spirituality and they became really physical. And the Sutton, the Zoyama of the Sutton, which is the projection of his contamination, entered them and they be, really became physical, you see. So therefore, what happened is what God did not intend to happen, which is that man should not create the fourth barrier. And as a result of the sin of Adam, he created the fourth barrier, which is the Zoyama. And it complicates matters, you see, because... How do you work through the barriers? Well, if the first barrier is what? Is Zoyama, is the pollution, the contamination of the Sutton, you gotta get rid of that, because that's a barrier, you know? If you feel you can equal God, eventually, whatever, right? Forget about the fact that you exist independent, but you can rival him, you know? Then how do you get rid of this? You certainly can't experience God with that type of a thought, you see? So, this explains now the tekufis, which is the eras of what's happening. And it's a beautiful way to understand the entire construct, the entire f uh, plan of the whole creation. Like I said, <clears throat> in the beginning, God created four barriers, not intending that man should enter the fourth barrier. Man should be Geshem, physicality and then what should happen is if a person does the right thing what will happen is that his physicality will, what in Hebrew it's called zikuch will become refined it will change the physical being of man himself will change it will retransform itself into a spiritual being you see if man does the right thing so really what he should have done, and he had the whole day to do it, or at least part of the day, the sixth day, is to retransform himself from a physical entity, basically, to a spiritual entity. Okay. But he didn't. He became more physical. 
And that created an enormous amount of difficulties. So, here's the way it works. So, for the last uh, 5,780 years, which is where we're at now, right? He has been trying to get rid of the Zoyama to expel the contaminant, the projected contaminant of the Sultan that pervades the physical body. And that's, by the way, why there's death, because that ultimately leads to decomposition, deterioration, and so on. That's really what the satanic influence does. Decomposes everything. And that's why one of the reasons why all living things die. But in any case, um, Adam, Horishan, and now everybody who comes after him has to remove the Zoyama. That's the first thing, because that is the, the greatest barrier of all. So it comes out that all the thousands of years, really, we have been trying to remove the Zoyama. <coughs> you see? And, and there are different ways to do it, which is part of what's called the Avedo, of how to remove the Zoyama, which I will speak about. Second idea, okay, so that's, so the first Tekufa, if you want to look at it that way, is man not with Zoyama, not with the contamination of the Southern. The second era, or period of time, is where all mankind is trying to remove the Zoyama. And that, of course, was essentially given first to all mankind for 2,000 years, and then when they failed, of course, it was given to the Jewish people. So the Jews, for the last almost 4,000 years, have been trying to remove the Zoyama, you see. So that's the second Tekufa. The third Tekufa, okay, is pre-Messianic. It's what's called the precursor, and that's really what we're in. It's when an individual called the Mashiach ben Yosef, okay, he battles with evil. He battles with this satanic force called Zoyama, and he removes it. So the, the, the period of time of the Mashiach ben Yosef really is that he battles evil, he battles the whole concept of this uh, satanic Zoyama. That's his job. And then all of a sudden, what happens is, is that lo and behold, the Zoyama disappears. When the Zoyama disappears, right, there is no more death, there's no disease. Everything is fabulous because there's no more satanic influence. What era is that? Mashiach ben David. Mashiach ben David's era, after Mashiach ben Yosef, is really identical to Odomarishan before the sin. You see, with Odomarishan's sin, like I said, he created a new barrier called Zoyama. You see, and that goes on so far for 5,000 uh, 5,780 years but once the Mashiach ben Yosef and that's his real job is to remove what's called Tumah okay and we by the way we are in that era that's his job and after he does that then he begins the era of the Mashiach ben David the, the, the Davidic Messiah okay and that's an era that there is no Zoyama it's incredible like I say we don't even know what that means that we will not have Zoyama you see, we cannot understand what that means. We've never experienced anything like that at all. What do you mean? No Zoyama? means there's no death, however you want to look at it, you see. But there's still Geshem. It's physical, but you don't die. Not only that, you never get sick. Not only that, everything goes, uh, everything goes your way, incredibly, you see. And not only that, since there's no Zoyama, 
right then you experience prophecy you at that level you begin to experience an unbelievable level of prophets prophecy that no prophet <coughs> ever experienced because when they experienced prophecy it was always with Zoyamo in them but in the messianic era of David HaMelech I know, okay, or Mashiach David, right? There is no Zayama, and therefore the experiencing of Ruchnius is something that we cannot even imagine. In fact, in Egypt, during the, uh, by Kriyas Yamsuf, okay, it says that a handmaiden experienced greater understanding of Kabbalistic concept, spirituality, than Yechezkel, Ezekiel, Hanovi experienced. Why? How is that possible? And the whole Kabbalah is based on Yechezkel's vision of the divine chariot, Maise And the answer is because the Jews had, were in the process of removing the Zoyama in Egypt, Mitzrayim, and that's really what it was about. So by the time Kriyas Yamsuf came about, it was only seven, was seven days into the trip. After seven days, you had the splitting of the Red Sea, right? But that means that all Israel had no, had uh, uh, 149th of the Zoyama or actually 749th of the Zoyama removed so uh, she was then a handmaiden of course all the Jews also was at a greater level of holiness than Yecheskel Anavi and therefore there was, there was much less of a barrier to experiencing God so she experienced what Yecheskel Anavi never experienced you see that's what happens when you have Zoyama. So in the Mashiach bin Dovid's Tekufa era, everybody will experience prophecy. Why? Because they have no Zoyama. You see? And it will be very easy to experience. You just sit down, shut your eyes, and there you are. You can experience prophecy, which, by the way, is an attachment to God at the level that you are when you are physical. But it's an attachment of God without Zoyama that we cannot in any way comprehend. So that is the, the, the incredible idea of what Mashiach bin Dovid's era is. You see, it is equal or the same as Adam Harishan before the sin. Same thing. The only difference is, is that Adam Harishan before the sin, right, he had a test, which he failed, right? But... The Jews in the Jews in uh, in the Messianic era of Mashiach ben David won't fail, because they will have done the tikkun already, removing the zoyama. That's the main thing, and God will take care of the rest. You see, so that itself becomes incredible. You see, so that's the era of Mashiach ben David. We now begin to understand the logic of these different eras. Now, in the year six thousand. Right? 6,000 is the end of 6,000 years. And that is the end of the whole process, even of Geshem. That means in the year 6001, which is the English year 2040, 2040, which is not, uh, uh, you know, which is uh, 2240, excuse me, yeah, 2240, uh, and so on, yeah, which is only 221 years, basically from now, very short the world begins to experience what is called zikuch. So from 6,000 to 7,000, the world is transformed. It means the world, the universe, loses its, 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 its geshem. 
it begins to lose it. And the neshama, or that, and that's what happens to the world. What happens to the person, people, okay, that uh, the body, even, everybody will have a body then, but it becomes inert. Inert means that it has absolutely no drives, no urges, nothing. It's like you put on a, uh, you know, a, a suit, you see, where the suit has no demands, except that it costs a lot of money. That's about it, right? And as a result of that, uh, the body is inert and it has absolutely no effect or influence on you, on the neshama. But in a certain sense, the, the uh, neshama, the soul, and the body will be equal. Neither will dominate, but the goof no longer dominates the soul. Only the universe is transformed. You see, it loses its physicality and becomes a spiritual domain. Very interesting. That's really what Shabbos is, but I'm not going to go into that. I once gave a shit about Shabbos. But anyway, it's called the Elif Hashvi, 7,000th year. Then from uh, 7 to 8 and 9, the, nish, the body not only begins, it, has no, it becomes inert, but it begins to retransform. In other words, the retransformation of Geshem even though it's inert, now begins. In 2,000 years, the physical body becomes completely dematerialized. Although it exists, we don't know in what form the body exists, but, uh, but it becomes dematerialized where now the neshama itself has, uh, has uh, domination, dominion. You see, all of this means we are getting closer and closer to God. You see, because what has been removed basically is the Zoyama, then physicality is removed, and by the 9,000th year, 9,001, even the concept of spirituality <coughs> as a barrier is removed. What remains? The concept of Zulosoy. You see, Enoyle Mahabo is a place that the Zulosoy, the fact that you feel like an other, which is an impediment to being attached to God, itself is tremendously diminished. Now, we don't know what that means, you know, even though we still exist to be attached to God, but this, this barrier of being an other also is diminished. And that goes on, and that is an idea that we have never, we cannot understand what that means, because we begin to experience existence itself, which means we begin to experience God himself. So we actually can see the era or the time periods of mankind, how it all relates to removing the barriers and ultimately the last barrier, which is Ilm Habo. And Ilm Habo, which is infinite, means that the Zulosai concept of, of, be, of feeling that you are an other than God is diminished infinitely. We don't know what that means. It's something that goes on forever. And it's sort of like every, if you want to use the term, every day, right? You feel closer and closer to God and the, uh, the uh, enjoyment or whatever pleasure is experienced gets more intense forever. We don't even know what that means and so on. But in a certain sense, this is what happens so far. Anyway, so this is the, the idea so far. Now, what God therefore has done is something very interesting. What he has done is the following, okay. Uh, since he wants you to remove the barriers, right? 
and he wants you to be attached to him, he has given what's called a mitzvah. What is a mitzvah? Uh, we think a mitzvah, well, it's basically you do a commandment. God commands you to do something. You do that mitzvah. Fine. But really, the mitzvah is much, much more profound than what we can imagine. Because when you do a mitzvah, okay, there are three levels of conflict. The first level of conflict is what? Should I do this act, the commandment, or should I not do the act? You see, it's a battle of act. But the real battle is not so much act, it's will. Should I do that which God commands, right? Because His will dominates. Or should I do what I want to do, right? Because I also have an independent will and I can do whatever I want. But the, the, the truth is that the conflict is deeper. Should I do the act, right? Or should I do what God wills? Uh, 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 should I do the, the commandment, right? Because it is the will of God that I do the commandment. That's number two. Why? Because really, I don't have a will independent of God. His will is the only thing that really exists. You see, so when you do a mitzvah, what you're really testifying, and that's really what it is, it's an edus, a testimony, if, however, you decide to do what you want, so you've done, didn't do the commandment, which is a sin, right? Because you also have a will that exists independent of God, right? I'm entitled to my own will. But really the thing is that I am entitled to my own will because I exist independent of God, and I therefore basically can become his equal, do whatever I want. So it comes out that doing a mitzvah or an avera in the end is a testimony of your belief. Do you believe that God is the only thing that really exists? And therefore you must follow the commandment A, right? You have to do his will. And you can't, right? And because he's the only one that exists, ain't it Besides God, there's nothing else. Or no, I could do what I want. I could do the act. It's a sin against his will because I have a right to an independent will. Okay? And the third idea, of course, is that I can exercise my own will because I exist independent of God and therefore I also have a will. I could do what I want. So what God gave is the structure of a mitzvah <clears throat> and the different levels of testimony. Why? Uh, because in the end, it's measure for measure. To the extent that you do the commandments of God, right? To that extent, you will experience God. To the extent that you testify that God is the only thing that exists, you see, that belief, you will experience that existence, that He is the only thing that exists. You see, it's a beautiful uh, mechanism, measure for measure, to experience the oneness of God, because ultimately, doing the mitzvah testifies that God is one, He's the only one, you see. Whereas if you sin, what you're really testifying, that besides God, there's also myself. That's what a person testifies. So therefore, the mitzvah is a perfect way of demonstrating what you believe, and the measure of that means the consequences of that is you get to experience what you testify to. You either experience God because you did the mitzvah, 
commandment or you don't experience God because you felt you exist independent and therefore God says well if you exist independent you know you're on your own and of course you instantly annihilate you see so therefore the concept of a mitzvah when you really think about that is the concept of of, uh, of demonstrating exactly how you feel in terms of the oneness of God and basically <clears throat> This is the way that uh, God wants you to earn your right to experience God. Very important concept. In other words, what we begin to see is that everything circles around or pivots around the concept of oneness. That God is He's the only one that really has existence and we emanate from Him. That's the basic experience in Oilam Habo. And therefore, all the commandments that God gave us, in some way, allows us to testify to that concept. You see, <clears throat> that's a very important idea. Because what we begin to understand is that this idea is really what we're really involved with. Therefore, what God wants us to, to testify is we believe in His oneness, that He's the only one that really exists. <coughs> Not only is he, is he the only one that has the supreme power, but He's really the only one that has the aspect, quality of existence itself. Now, how do the Jews express it? Well, I mentioned mitzvahs, you see. There's a second way a Jew can express that, and that is through repentance or tshuva. When a Jew repents, what he's really saying, uh, I gave the wrong testimony that God, that I exist independent of God, and I, of course, I take it back. You know, I uh, cancel that testimony, and I'm sorry, I regret what I did, because really God is the only one that exists. So we see that tshuva also, in some way, expresses the oneness of God. Then there's a third way, which I once mentioned, and that's called Yisurin. All three are what's called Tikkun devices because they rectify creation. They allow God to come back into creation. And the way Yisurin works, or suffering, is where a person says, you know, when a person suffers, that demonstrates to the person that basically he's a nobody. Because if he really was a somebody, then why can't he stop his own suffering? So what suffering does is it shows a person and diminishes a person in terms of his own stature, you see. And that is the beginning of accepting the fact that, well, if I'm nobody, right, that's the beginning, uh, that's sort of like half the idea. The other half is that God is everything, you see. So suffering also is that type of mechanism that expresses at least the negation of self, and it's the beginning of the understanding that God is the only one that exists. But there's something else about suffering the Jews can bring back God, you see, in one of two ways, overall methods. And we begin to understand now what is going on. The first way, like I said, is to do mitzvahs, and that's, or, or tshuva, and that is a direct statement that we believe that God is one. Fine. But what happens if the Jews don't do that? What happens if the Jews sin? you see, then there's a problem because they're not doing the devices that express the oneness of God. It's a big problem. 
But God wants to be declared, perceived as one, as the absolute ruler and the absolute being. So therefore, God now embarks on a second path, you see. So the first path is what's called to bring the, it is to do the mitzvahs and therefore to declare the light of God, so to speak, by your actions. But the second path where you don't do the mitzvahs, or I should say the Jewish people in general don't do the mitzvahs, there becomes a second path. And remember, the object of the second path is what God, what God wants to do, which is, listen, I'm going to show the world that I am one. It's up to you guys to do it. That's the Jewish right, choice. But what happens if the Jews don't do that? God still says, I want to declare I'm one. But how does he do it? And this is what's not good for us. It's not even good for mankind, you know. God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to intensify evil. Yeah. I'm going to allow evil, anybody that wants to do evil, full reign. Means I'm not even going to stop him. I'm not going to judge him. I will not stop him. You see, let him do what they want to do. Now, why would God want to do that? You see, because imagine, uh, uh, imagine you want to, uh, you know, uh, somebody wants to fight somebody. But that person is weak. So let's say, uh, you know, uh, Ruvain. Ruvain wants to fight somebody, right? But Ruvain, but, but the guy wants to fight his opponent. He's really very weak. So guess what? Ruvain fights him and he wins. What does that declare about Ruvain? Ah, big deal. I mean, because his opponent wasn't very strong anyway. Now, what happens if his opponent is average strength, right? And Ruvain wins, right? So you say, okay, Ruvain, not bad, but this guy was only average. I mean, like, come on, you know. <clears throat> Why should, of course he's going to win, basically, especially if Ruvain is strong. You see, so it doesn't demonstrate the strength or the incredible ability of Ruvain. But what happens, right, if the opponent, right, isn't weak or average, he happens to be Mr. Universe. Or, bigger than that, Mr. Olympia. That's like the, the greatest, uh, uh, what do you call it, the muscle guy around, right? That's the top, right? Anyway, uh, and then Rubin comes and, and, really, and, and, and really devastates Mr. Olympia. What would you say about Rubin? See, this guy's incredible, you know? I mean, substitute uh, the Mr. Olympia with any world heavyweight boxing champ, I don't care, or the, the greatest uh, judo champ or karate guy, I don't care who it is, right? But it's got to be the world's greatest, right? And then Ruven comes along and he slam dunks the guy. I mean, and, and it, takes, it takes exactly three seconds. What would you say about Ruven? This guy's incredible. He's the greatest, most powerful man that ever existed, right? Because he just beat his opponent, that really is the greatest, or at least we thought so. That's what God says. Okay, you choose the one to bring me back, right? So here's the way I'm going to come back and declare my oneness. I'm going to let the opposite of oneness, which is evil, because people are evil are always saying, well, you know who I am? It's always arrogance and megalomania and all kinds of evil stuff, <coughs> killing and murder and robbery, you name it, right? So God says, here's what I'm going to do. Choose the one to declare my oneness, fine. But 
I wanted to clear my oneness because ultimately that's the tikkun where everybody will know who I am. Fine. So what does God do? He allows the world to become incredibly evil, unbelievably evil, you see, where you look and say, forget it. There's no way that anything can overcome this. It's just impossible, you see. And all of a sudden, the evil collapses and is destroyed. You see, what do you begin to realize? See, wait a minute, we could never imagine this, right? This is absolutely miraculous that this thing that we thought would never end is now devastated. You see, that's how God demonstrates his oneness, his unbelievable power, his might, you see, uh, and his, uh, his uh, but what he does, like I said, is he allows evil in order to be successful, it pervades everything, and it's unbelievably powerful. And God, you know, what God does is He allows a, an opponent to become this. And He now will take him out in seconds. Well, what would He say about that? It's a miracle. <clears throat> you see. Now, has God been doing that? Now we begin to understand, you see, who were the first ones that could do the tikkun, right? It was the first 2,000 years of mankind's history, right? Everybody, correct, right? So God said, listen, nobody's bringing me back. Nobody's declaring that I'm the supreme being. I'm the only thing that exists. Nobody's thinking or talking or believing in my oneness. See what I'm going to do? I'm going to wipe them all out, mobble. The mobble, if you think about that, what did it demonstrate? It's unbelievable. How does a being flood the planet and kill every living thing except the, the ark, right? How? Do you begin to think and say that being must be so supreme, so incredible, we begin to think he is the only one. That's really what the model was. Because the world at that time did not demonstrate it. So God had to say, I'm going to flex my muscles. You see? And he just wiped out everything. And people realize this isn't normal. It's not normal to, f to, to rain 40 days. It's not normal. I mean, it's weather is weather. But not this, right? And not only did it rain 40 days, then it says the the Tohimus, the, the, the abyss, we don't even know what that means, right? Just rose and everybody was drowned. They also, this is not an act of man. There is nothing that can explain this. This is an act of God. <clears throat> and then they realized the oneness. And God made his point. You see? But unfortunately, he had to do it to an utter destruction of the greatest evil of all, which is every person on the planet, was evil. Where do we see the next one? Egypt. What did God do? You see, the Jews are in Egypt, fine. But the problem is that the Jews are now in the 49th level of Tumah, right? They're not doing very well. They're worshipping idols and so on, right? So God says, okay, I've got to show Egypt who I am and also the Jews. But how? So God goes about and makes Egypt the greatest nation on earth. That's why it became great. Because God was going to wipe it out. He was going to increase the opponent's might and power so he could wipe it out. You see? Because he's going to demonstrate it this way. 
You see? Makes sense. Now you understand what's going on in Mitzrayim, in Egypt. So what did God do on the Ramses and so on, Tutmosis and all these guys, right? He made it the greatest nation on earth, which it was, right? And then the Bashem goes in, using Moshe Rabbeinu as the agent, right? And he says, excuse me, you know, you, it's over with you. So of course Paris said, excuse, he probably laughed. It's excuse me, who are you? You know, some 80-year-old guy telling me that I got to release all my slaves? You know, it was probably like a comedy to him. You see? And what did God do? He wiped out Egypt. I mean, we can't imagine what that is. The only probably experience we can, the only way we can probably understand that is imagine if God says to, you know, uh, America, you know, what are you guys doing? You have all kinds of sins, right? You have the uh, homosexuality, you have the, the immorality and the arrogance and the materialism. You, what are you guys doing? You know? And of course, America says, what are you talking about, right? And then God just wipes them out. Now we can relate to that more because America is an awesome firepower. We don't even know what's in the stockpile of the army and the Navy and the Air Force and so on, you know? Uh, that's the only way we can relate to it and so on, you know? But that's really what Egypt was in its day. It was the most powerful nation on earth, you see? So God raised it. You see, Leman, as God says, Leman, she seen, you know, in order to place my miracles. You see, why? Because if the Jews don't declare the oneness of God, then evil will declare the oneness of God. You see, that's the incredible thing. That's the path that God uses to ultimately declare his oneness to the world. Very important idea. So it was demonstrated by the model. And clearly demonstrated by Egypt. I mean, the Russian just wiped them out, the Kriya Samsov. I mean, just incredible what he did to Egypt. And then, of course, after that, uh, you had other times, you know, the Jews were exiled to Babylon, right? He wiped out Babylon. Although it wasn't miraculous, you didn't see it, but he collapsed the empires. He collapsed Babylon. That's why he makes them great. Because if the Jews are not doing the right thing because they're exiled to Bovel and the base Hamidus is destroyed, God steps in, right? Then you have Persia, Ahasuerus. Again, the greatest empire, right? And uh, there, in that case, he just wiped out Haman. I mean, Haman probably said to himself, I can't believe what's happening. You know, I'm the Grand Vizier in one day, and Esther's inviting me to the party, and the next day he's being hung, right? Like, what is that? You know, these things don't happen like that, you see? And the same thing with Greece. Greece, after Alexander died, basically fell apart. Collapse. They all collapse, you see. They first become great, and then they collapse. Same thing with Rome. Rome was the height of everything and collapsed. And the Bershom does that all the time. He raises nations because the Bershom is always declaring, you know, the Jews are not bringing my oneness, right, by doing the mitzvahs and tshuva. So what I'm going to do is allow evil to proliferate. But the interesting thing about it is that usually it's one nation, you see? So Babylon collapsed, Persia collapsed, Greece collapsed, Rome collapsed, you see? And we are witnessing now what? The Arabs are collapsing. It's amazing, you know? It's always the same thing, you know, where the Jews don't do what they're supposed to do, and the Bershom in many ways enters, you see? And that's really what it says, that the Mashiach can only come one of two ways. Either Kulum Zakoim, everybody's righteous, in which case, what happens? 
God enters, right? Because you've declared my oneness, I can come back in, in a miraculous way, right? Or kulum chayovim, nobody's doing the mitzvahs, right? So in that case, when kulum chayovim, the Mashiach also comes. But then if the Mashiach has to come in an era that the Jews are not doing the mitzvahs, then there's going to be incredible evil, so then God will collapse that place and declare his oneness. That always happens, you see. Very important, uh, it's a very important concept and so on. So uh, we actually see that, you see, you know. Actually, we see that by Avram Avinu. Because when God made a covenant between the pieces, the Brisbane of Sodom with Avram, he made an agreement with what? That Avram Avinu, you need to do the tikkun, the rectification. How? By doing my mitzvahs, my terrorists, and so on, right? And in order to, uh, you know, to guarantee the agreement, God passed through pieces of animals. It's called the Brisbane Absarum. But he passed as two things. First, he passed as what? As a, uh, as a lapid ash, flame of fire. And the second way was a tanur oshan, a smoking furnace. So Rashi says that smoking furnace is Gehenim, you see, or tremendous suffering. So what God was saying is the following. Either, and of course God said, you know, and there will be strangers in the land of 400 years. So ultimately what God is saying, either the Jews bring me back, right, through mitzvahs and tshuva and so on, okay, and therefore I will uh, declare my oneness and bring a tikkun, rectification to the world through your belief that I am one, or Gehenim, furnace, you see? And what that means is that the Jews will suffer because I will allow evil to proliferate, pervade with unbelievable power in that nation, you see? And then I will have to destroy that nation and that will declare my oneness. Either you do it or I have to do it. But if God does it, you are looking at an unbelievable growth of evil. This is what we see with all the nations. When the Jews sinned, the nations always had dominion over the Jews, and God collapsed them, however he did, you see. And today we witness the same thing. Today, when we are near the end, <coughs> again, it's the same idea where the Jews are not doing the tikkun, through what? Through mitzvahs and tshuva. Unfortunately, millions of Jews are gone, right? And of course, the reason for that is the era of Rav, are the Jews themselves who are trying to disconnect Jews from God, from the Torah. And that's what the era of Rav is, right? Where Jews want to declare the uh, uniqueness of the Jewish nation is not the agreement we have with God. Rather, it's, uh, like I say, Jewish culture, Jewish history, Jewish language, you know, and so on. You know, filterfish, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and the ones responsible in that case, of course, are the heir of Rav, you see. And therefore, God is, and God says, okay, then I have to do it. So God allowed all of these, the heir of Rav, who are what? In America, it's the reformed, the conservative, the reconstructionist. In Israel, who is it, right? It's the Maskilim, the old Haskola from Russia, and so on. It's the secular Zionist. He has allowed them free reign for the last 50 years. And they, in many ways, have destroyed American Jewry, you know? But what does that mean? Because God is going to come in and say, since the Jewish people are not doing it, I will destroy the ear of Rav. But remember, there's a difference because they are Jews. 
So ultimately, <coughs> they will ultimately return, which is interesting. But that's after the Mashiach and so on. But meanwhile, uh, God <coughs> is now, seems to be in the process of destroying the ear of Rav. If you think about that, the reform is collapsing in America, certainly. They are collapsing. The conservative is really down. You know, Reconstructionist, the secular Zionist, and, and of course the, uh, the air of Rav, we see now the collapse of the government. It's all miraculous. Again, God is flexing his muscle, and he's showing he is going to bring himself back. That's a very important concept, you see. So we are now, we are now seeing this. Now, what's important to understand is this next idea. We understand now why evil has to dominate at the end of time. Because if the Jews don't bring him back, then God himself will bring it back and raise the nation. But here's the problem. It's a really a big problem. In order for evil to dominate and proliferate, it's not enough that evil dominates. The righteous must be subdued and diminished. Because evil, for evil to dominate, two things have to happen. Is that people who are evil have to succeed, but righteous people have to be tremendously uh, uh, diminished and suffer. Yeah, because that's part of what's the concept of evil rising. And this is the problem. But wait a minute, righteous people don't deserve to suffer. And therefore, there's a very important thing that you have to realize, especially today, although it was true all the time. There are many people who are righteous, many people who are righteous, you know, and uh, there are so many Jews who are really righteous, and uh, they, they're, they're, they're sincere people, yet they suffer terribly. Why? You see? It's, and the reason for that is that it's not their acts or their actions that have determined that they should suffer. It's because the time, the Zman, demands that evil proliferate. And therefore, righteous people must suffer. Not because they deserve it or because of their actions. It's because in order for evil to dominate, right, then evil has to see that the righteous suffer and they will say, oh, you see, we're right. In other words, God is setting up evil to proliferate. It's called Tegber Saram. And the result of that is there are a tremendous amount of people who are religious, orthodox, or good people. And they suffer, not because they deserve it at all, because there's no denim, there's no judgment. It's the time demands or what God wants to do. That's why they suffer. That anhoga, it's called anhoga, uh, which de determines that righteous people suffer for no reason that they did, okay, is the anhoga sayichud. That's really what it is. Because what God is doing is saying, listen, I need to show the world who I am. Unfortunately, I will allow evil to build up, right? And I'm going to destroy the evil. But part of the way to build up the world's evil is to allow righteous people to suffer. That's why so many religious Jews have tsaris. You know, people don't realize, really? How many people are tzaddikim? They certainly don't deceive the tsarists that you see all over the place. Diseases and divorces, bankruptcies. I mean, it, it's incredible when you look at what's going on here. Why? You know, and the answer to that is not because they deserved it at all. 
It's because this is the path. Anogus Hayichud demands uh, that God must come back with his oneness. <clears throat> and in order to do that, he has to allow evil to grow. That's why you see all over the world, evil grows. There are so many countries, there are dictators. Every, you know, there are dictators there. People suffer. Evil is done, you know, unfortunately, even in the United States. Uh, there's a great deal of evil. There's an enormous amount of immorality. You know, what, what do we call that? LB, whatever that's called, LBG or whatever that, you know, and, and so on and so forth, you know? Uh, you know? And there's an enormous amount of materialism. You know, there are so many people that are wealthy and they are incredibly arrogant. You know, we, we don't realize that there's a great deal of evil, not the evil of dictators. That's a different story, you know? I mean, take certain countries, forget about it, you know, Iran, I mean, you know, what kind of, or a player like China and so on, that's really evil and so on, you know, but, um, but evil is also when people think that they can do whatever they want and ignore all kinds of spirituality, you know, and allow all kinds of immorality to exist, you see. So when God says, listen, I'm going to allow it to go, I'm not going to judge them, I'll just disappear. So the country will grow in tremendous might, and then I'm going to slam them. And that will demonstrate to the country and to the entire world who I really am. And that's really what's happening now, if you really think about that. But it's interesting, you see, that God is now slowly beginning to do that to, to different places and so on, whether it be through earthquakes or weather extremes, you know, or bankruptcies or countries and so on, you know, countries are collapsing, you see, and this is God demonstrating His oneness. But unfortunately, in order to allow this to happen, you know, righteous people have to suffer. And that's part of allowing the dominion of evil. Now you may say, wait a minute, Wait a minute. Okay, I can understand God has a plan because He wants to express His oneness. Okay, but come on. What kind of justice is that? Why would a righteous person have to suffer just because God has a plan? See, it's a powerful question. And God doesn't do that kind of stuff. He's got to suffer because God wants to declare His oneness. And the answer is yes. Not because of justice, as I said. Because in order for God's plan to be realized, this is what has to happen in order for evil to dominate. However, these people who do suffer will be rewarded for their suffering, you see. And in a certain sense, it's really good for them. Why? Because like this, they can only cash in in the future world because whatever their mitzvahs were and so on. But now a guy can say, listen, I suffered so your oneness should be declared, should be observed. So that enormously raises the reward of that individual person and that person doesn't realize of course he's going to get he's going to get reward for what he did you know you know but god it, in order to bring about the end of time ignores the pleas of these people you see and it's not because god doesn't wants to do it to them you know without any rahmanas he can't because he wants to bring the grand experiment called mankind to an end you see and therefore in order to do that he has to allow evil to dominate and as a result of the domination of evil you see part of that of course is the righteous has to suffer so evil can say you see we're right all kinds of and evil can further proliferate but those people who suffered and there are many today you know people wonder what in the world is going on 
You know, many, many doctors have said they've never seen so much sickness among the Orthodox or among Jewish people and so on. And this is the reason why. But in the end, every person that suffered in order that God should demonstrate his oneness will receive a reward, a closeness to God, that is incalculable. And he doesn't realize. And like I say, because a person does a certain amount of good deeds, so he'll receive a reward for the good deeds. But since God has made the Jewish population, certainly the tzaddikim or the righteous people, or, you know, and sincere people and so on, since he has made them as part of his plan, and they have suffered for God's sake, then they will receive a reward which is infinitely greater than the reward that they would have received based on their own merits. That's what it is. So in a certain sense, you know, God, that's it. He shuts his ears off in many ways to prayer. I'm not saying it doesn't work at all, but it's much more difficult. And we find that in the, in the Chazal, in the end of Saita, the rabbis say, you know, at the end of time, chutzpah yazgeh, right? Arrogance will, it will be rampant, right? Truth will be in the ground, nobody cares anymore, and so on. And this is the proliferation of evil. You see? And the famous Gemara in Marcus where it says, that in the end of time, right, a tzaddik will only be able to live by his faith. Why? What about his merits? Because his merits don't count. Because he's going to be involved in the suffering as a result of the fact that God is using that method, you see, to bring around a declaration of the oneness of God. It's a very important concept. It explains what is happening today and why. Now, the interesting thing about this, and one more, a very important idea, not all righteous people suffer. There are some guys that are still successful. So why is that? You would think that all righteous people should suffer, right? And then evil really go to town, right? Uh, but we see it's not true, you see? Because it's interesting, and that's the, called the, the muzzle. <coughs> no, God knows the essence of the entire creation. He knows what it is, why it is, how it ticks. As they say, every soul, neshama, of the Jewish people has a portion or an assignment in bringing the tikkun, which is ultimately to bring God back. You see, God knows exactly what the root of your soul is and what your assignment is. You don't. Nobody does. And not only that, it's concealed from all living entities. Malachim don't know it. Nobody knows it. But God does. So based on the root of Yunishama, and we don't know why somebody will be picked, let's say, to be a Rosh Hashiva, and somebody will be picked to, uh, to be a plumber. We have no idea, you see? But it's all based on your part in the system of bringing God back, you see? So based on that, God decides, well, will this person suffer when he wants to make evil proliferate or not? You see, now we don't know what the logic is at all. These are among the greatest mysteries of all. Why, why do things happen to you? And why does something happen to the other guy which is different and so on? Same idea. God knows exactly who is what and why and what their purpose is, what their assignment is in the tikkun process. And based on that, for the good of creation, some righteous people suffer, some righteous people are matzliach. You see? 
even though the general decree is that everybody will, or that evil will proliferate and so on, and so on. So it's not a really an answer. But one thing is, one thing you have to know, in the great day of judgment, right? everything will be explained to every creature. Everything. So in the end, you'll have your answer. You'll know exactly who you are, why you were that, why your entire life, you know, there used to be a show on TV. It used to be called This Is Your Life. I remember that show for those people who are old enough to remember that, you know. He used to take a guy and they used to bring back, you know, some guy that says... First grade teacher. Yeah, and he used to bring, exactly. They brought back people that he hadn't seen in 50 years. <coughs> and of course, he would be shocked and he'd be crying. And everybody would be there feeling for this guy, you know, seeing guys hadn't seen, you know, uh, in 50 years. He'd probably bring back his ex-wife also. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> who knows. But anyway, you know, so... God is going to have a monumental this is your life show in the, in, in the great judgment day and so on. So in the end, you'll know why. Everything. And like I say, you know, you'll know why. You'll know exactly why you had to suffer in order for evil to proliferate and why the other guy didn't have to suffer and so on. And he had an easy time. And we all see that. We see, say, this guy, this guy's doing fabulous, you know. And this guy, he doesn't have a, you know, have a penny to it in his pocket, you know, or, or whatever. And he's sick and this and that. All kinds of terrible sorrows and so on, you know. All of that will be explained. But you need to be rest assured that whatever a person does, A, and whatever he suffers for this cause will be rewarded beyond human imagination. That you can be sure of, you see. Except that we are subject to a greater force, and that force is called the Anogus Ayichod. That's it. That force means that the universe must come to an intended end where God openly reveals his unbelievable yichud, his open, uh, his, uh, the, the incredible yichud uh, uh, or oneness of God, and, and so on, you know. And um, this is what's going on now. That's what we're seeing. And right now, you know, we are in the Messianic era, pre-Messianic era, uh, in the era really of Mashiach ben Yosef. If you really think about that, you know, where ben Yosef contends with evil, you see, and at that point in time, right, God is now using method B. Okay, I'm going to let everybody become evil, and then I'll destroy them. And that's why you see, you know, uh, for instance, Hitler, Nazi Germany, he rose to incredible power. It's like, it was unbelievable. And then destroyed, you see. Uh, you have also Russia, Stalin, destroyed. Uh, and, and so on and China well they're communists and they're still communists and so on you know look we don't know why things are allowed to continue or not but in general evil is allowed to proliferate and uh, I believe we are certainly in the generation that Mashiach bin Yosef uh, in the generation of that precursor to Mashiach bin Yosef maybe in the generation of Mashiach bin Yosef where all these things will collapse and maybe I think that's what's happening we are watching Israel the air of Rav in Israel is collapsing, you see. And these guys think they're invincible. I'm sure that's what they think. You know, uh, he's, uh, you know I'm sure Netanyahu thought he was invincible. You know, and so on, the longest guy. And you think, this can never happen to me. I mean, Trump is my best friend. Uh, of course he never thought this, you know. And meanwhile, you know, in, in, in three, you know, in less than a half a year, God just wiped him out. 
lost, couldn't put a coalition together once, couldn't put it together twice, and that's miraculous, right? And now he's indicted. Now he doesn't even know what to do with himself, you know? I mean, he's going to face a terrible time and so on. Uh, but in any case, uh, we, are, we are watching the era of Rab really collapsing and so on, you know? Uh, and I believe this is really what's happening, <clears throat> and so on. So, what I've tried to do is demonstrate the different eras of why things happen, you see? And uh, the concept of two methods that God declares as oneness. And that's why so many things that are happening today, in many ways, make no sense at all. You see? And like I said, that's why it says in the, in the Torah, Tzadik Yichya, it says that in the Gemara, that even a righteous man has to live with his faith because he has absolutely no idea what's going on. Even if he has Ruach HaKadosh, it doesn't make a difference. And not only that, his merits don't count. God will not listen to his merits. He doesn't take into account. You know, because he has to come back, he'll let evil <coughs> proliferate, and then he will just wipe everything out. That's basically what the story is. So that explains, you know, what happens before the Mashiach comes and why we see the collapse or rather the proliferation of such so much evil that is going on in this world. That's basically what, what the story is. And I believe it explains what's happening in Israel and hopefully it's the beginning of the end of the era of Rav. That's it. Thank you. Any questions? Yes. <coughs> Um, this is a barrier between the uh, Zuloso and the Bonishlam. Is that Ainsof or Atzmusov? It, it's then, never Atzmusov, it's always Ainsof. So, what's the relationship between Atzmusov, <coughs> Ainsof, and the Zuloso in terms of the barriers? Understand who the Bonishlam really is. That, that's a question. <laughs> I don't need to take another shear. I, mean, I don't really want to, I, don't want to I, I do not even want to go there. You know. The third step. Oh, all I can tell you is that Atzmusoy, whoever God really is, nobody, nobody knows, uh, is not, there's no way we can even talk about that. God, of course, like I once said, you know, created a being called Ainsoyf. Ainsof is not God in that sense, although when you pray, you pray to God, you know. But uh, it is the Ainsof that created the Zulosof. Because the, the, f the fundamental nature of that Ainsof, of a, a being that's infinite and so on, the Divine Presence, is that Ainid Mavadu, there is nothing else besides. So therefore, Zulosof is a, uh, is a, uh, a creation from that Ainsof. But I don't want to get more into that. From the Atzmusa. Atzmusa can't talk about Atzmusa. No, no. From Ein Soif. Ein Soif was created from Atzmusa. It would seem so. Yes, it was, but what the relationship between that and these things are absolutely unknown. Anyway. So isn't that an additional barrier between... But that's a barrier you can never cross. Uh, that's, then you talk about being God or knowing who God is, which is impossible. Who really, who He really is? No such thing. You can never know who He really is, because there's no, no, there's no vocabulary, there's no concepts that will describe that. It doesn't exist. So how could you possibly know something if there's not even a vocabulary for it? You know. So you know. Yeah. When you talk about Kashmir's. 
And yes. We live in a home as that. Yes. You take somebody working, and he's got to flip a light switch, and say mincha, and disengage himself from the world. It, I'm talking about phone people. It's very hard to flip a switch and then start praying. You know. Well, and it's an avoda. It's. That's what that that's what the avoda is, is to become spiritual even though you live in a physical world. Look, Judaism requires something which is very different from many religions. Judaism requires to live in a physical world. That's why all the commandments, all the mitzvahs are basically physical. But you have to channel the physical into spiritual. That's what the avoid is. There are other religions that they they they, they say you have to remove yourself from the physical. You know what I'm saying? Which is not the Jewish way at all. God puts you in the physical world and if you channel the physical in a mitzvah, then you refine that aspect of the physical universe. I'm not talking anyway. about a physical act like putting tefillin on it. I, you said mincha. I mean you're controlling your thoughts. No, no, no. Fine. So that's part of the avodah. You have to learn how to, you know, disconnect from the world and Dav Mincha, replace it with God. What it really requires is before you Dav Mincha, you know, you don't run into the shul, right? That's what people do. They run into the shul and say, okay, Ashrei Yoshvi Yisecha, you know, you don't do that. That's why the Hasidim Rishonim, the Gemara says, the earlier pious, you know, the Tzaddikim, they used to meditate for hours before they would daven to get away from the mundane, worldly, and get into the spiritual. It needs... And the working. No, I, 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 I don't want to belay the point. That's what you have to do. You don't run into a davening. Yeah, of course it's hard. You don't run into a davening. You have to, before you, it, it's worthwhile coming, let's say, 15 minutes before the davening, whatever, and then say to yourself, okay, what am I about to do? To whom am I going to talk? And begin to think about God and what you're about to do. You're about to stand in front of Melech Malchem Lochem, the King of Kings of King. You know, in front of him. Okay, how should I conduct myself? It requires some type of meditation or thinking. Exactly. Yeah. Anybody else? There's a midrash that says that uh, the world will exist for six thousand six hundred sixty-nine years, not six thousand, but six thousand sixty-nine. What midrash is that? Uh, just so, so, so. I don't know. So, yeah. Let's, Marshall, let's say by the <coughs> marble, when the Dora marble, did they reach that realization? Was there a ticken for them because of what they saw? Well, they realized the realization simply because this never happened in nature before. It doesn't rain 40 days straight, and it must have been some rain, uh, you know, and, and water doesn't pour out of the planet, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they realize, I mean, this is not normal. It's a completely deviation from nature. And, they, and not only that, they had Noyach sitting there for 120 years saying God is going to bring a flood. I'm sure that, that spread in the local paper. You know, Rabbi Noach says that God is going to destroy us in 120 years, whatever. So I'm sure that got around, you know. Yeah, of course they left at that. Yeah, but this is already when they realized that, that there was nowhere to go anymore. Then that, that the last yes, unfortunately, you know, woman was hanging. So was he masig? You know? I'm sure he thought about. You know, this is very odd. Yesterday I was the grand vizier, and today he's being hung. That's this is quite odd. <laughs> I'm sure he realized that he he messed around with the wrong god. What can I say? You know, or the wrong people. You know. 
and, uh, and uh, look Zeresh's wife was smarter than him she said you know if he's from the Jews and you're beginning to fall people, you are going to fall because if so, so it's the, if, if, if it's just clearing the way or there was actually a tikkun in the Bria because of it you mean was there a realization of what was happening to the guy yeah, I'm sure but it, the problem is that it's too late you know, it's too late. It's after the judgment is, uh, you know, um, has been pronounced, you know. Look, if there would be a tikkun at all, maybe when they came back as Gilgulam. So maybe they got a better deal. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but uh, certainly after the judgment was pronounced, I mean, theoretically, uh, it says even if there's a, uh, a sharp uh, knife on top of your, th- you know, your neck, don't give up hope you know uh, but uh, you know but still it's, it's not a great time to do tshuva you know okay what says that the world will end at 6093 years after creation where is that it's a uh, meter says on, on the bottom it's uh, the according to the strategy no it's a strategy okay I mean, it says Gemara just says six thousand, but then it's more than that. Why sixty-nine? Where did they come to with that? Uh, I, mean, I don't 6093, know. Six thousand ninety-three, actually. Ninety-three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.